Hello and welcome to More Than Miscellaneous, Vassar's News Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Kapitsky. I am a senior editor at the Miscellany News. And on today's show, I'm joined by Rebecca Edwards, professor of history at Vassar College. And we're going to be talking about uh, the events of Wednesday, January 6th, the insurrection, and we're going to dive into the background history behind that. So, Professor Edwards, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And just to start things off, a lot has been made of what exactly the people who stormed the Capitol were. Can you describe, uh, with keeping in mind American history, what who they were and what were they doing? That's a really good question. And I think uh, as often is the case, it's not as it's more complicated than it seems at, at first uh, at first glance. I think if we think on a spectrum here on one end of the spectrum, people are going to say, well, this was a bunch of individuals who did things that were bad. They were you know, they committed crimes. And uh, obviously they were coordinated, right? <laughs> it wasn't just random individuals who happened to show up at the Capitol that day. And so it's really interesting to me. I think insurrection is probably the best word that for it. Uh, of course, people across the political spectrum have used that word insurrection. But the peculiar thing about this insurrection is that it was incited by the president. And I think that the, the New York Times headline, Trump incites mob, really describes what happened more succinctly and clearly than almost anything else. And so we don't really quite have a precedent for that, for someone in office uh, sort of essentially um, directing an insurrection against another branch of government, right? This is the executive uh, uh, fomenting an, uh, an, an insurrection against the Congress, uh, specifically for the counting of votes. You see a lot of people making a kind of equivalence here, like, well, there was a lot of violence last summer and, you know, there were there were a, a lot of, you know, people burning things in the cities. And now this is another act of violence and we have to condemn violence on both sides. And that's a really false equivalence that really doesn't get very much at all into what happened here. This was quite directed. In fact, it was directed very, very overtly. So through Twitter and other channels, uh, Trump told people, come to Washington, D.C., Come, you know, come here. Uh, I need your help. This election was rigged. I'm really the winner. This there was fraud. You know, there's been months of that, right? And he called them there. He called them to the the lawn in front of the White House. He spoke to them on the White House, and he said, literally, "Go down to the Capitol, right? They're counting the electoral votes right now. You should go down there, right?" Um, so it, it could not possibly be more clear or direct who uh, incited it. In fact, I think it was. Um, um, Congressman Lynn Cheney of Wyoming, uh, who, uh, a daughter of Dick Cheney, who's not someone I would think I often agree with. Uh, so she has some interesting perspectives sometimes, uh, uh, who said, yeah, you know, the president, <laughs> the president did this. <laughs> Let's be really clear. So uh, I think that, that that's a really important piece. And it, it makes it hard for us to figure out what the what the precedents are, what the historical precedents are. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'll make the argument, and we can talk about this in a minute, that uh, that probably secession in 1860 is the closest analogy I can think of to this, uh, but it's a little bit different. Uh, obviously, it's not quite the same, but I would argue that probably the secession moment in 1861, 60-61 is the closest we've got. Yeah, you mentioned that the, this is something altogether unprecedented with the president inciting this insurrection, but I'm wondering if 
stuff like this has happened before, an armed invasion of the U.S. Capitol, either by uh, United States citizens or otherwise. Well, you know what? This is not a precedent exactly, uh, but it's the first thing that comes to mind from the period that I study, which is that there were uh, there was a march on the first march on Washington happened in uh, in 1894 in the middle of the depths of the Great Depression of the 1890s, a very severe depression, and people peacefully marched to Washington and they were asking the federal government to do something that would become quite. Uh, normal in the 1930s and the New Deal, which is to create jobs. They said, we need good roads, we need jobs. And so in the middle of this depression, we want the federal government to employ us. Uh, and so there, it was called Coxey's Army, uh, a, a rather eccentric businessman from Ohio named Jacob Coxey um, marched to Washington. And when they arrived in Washington, uh, they, uh, they were arrested for trespassing on the Capitol grass, on the lawn. And I think that the contrast there, uh, as they were arriving, uh, apparently guns were distributed to the people in the US Treasury, the employees, because everybody thought that this was gonna be armed. They were peaceful. They said, we're peaceful, we're coming peacefully. What we want is to appeal for jobs. Uh, We're desperate, our families are desperate. We're in the middle of a depression, we need help. And they, when they arrived, Coxie had great hopes that he was going to be able to give a speech on the steps of the Capitol, uh, and they were immediately arrested. So there's a little contrast there in terms of what, you know, the preparations made by the Capitol Police. Uh, I think that is one of the extraordinary things on Wednesday is that this was, it was really overt and clear that this was happening. Uh, there was no question that people were coming and planning to potentially disrupt this count. And, uh, and, and yet people came in and, and tragically, of course, uh, there's a Capitol Police officer who's lost his life uh, and uh, uh, others who are you know, grievously wounded uh, because we, you know, there simply wasn't, they didn't have enough backup. They had very little uh, support and, and, uh, and, 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 and backup. So Coxie was arrested and his army was disbanded. And, you know, there've been other peaceful, many other peaceful protests. So the Capitol is that very sacred space where you go when you say, as the people, we want to be heard. Uh, One of my favorite stories in American history is that after Franklin D. Roosevelt was elected, Coxie was invited back to finally give the speech that he had wanted to give in 1894, but was much too radical. He was viewed as, you know, as a real agitator. And then in the 1930s, his ideas about, hey, let's ask the federal government to help give people jobs during severe economic downturns. Now, after by the 1930s, that was standard or it was accepted. And so he gave that speech. So there are many moments I can think of when people came to the Capitol to petition, uh, but the idea that people would come inside and wreck it you know, that their point that, that American citizens would come and, and plunder it, uh, that that's there's there just isn't really any <laughs> there just isn't any precedent for that, that American citizens would want to plunder their own their own Congress, their own, you know, their own halls of power. So uh, and, and that, that was clearly part of the intent. Right. Put our feet up on the desks, rip things up, uh, you know, uh, 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 steal stuff. We don't really have any precedent for that. Right. And I wonder if at the time with the perception of Coxie and his followers were, were they considered, what, what, what part of American society were they coming from? Were they considered radicals or were they considered patriots? I mean, everyone's heard the president saying, we love you, you're special. Obviously, he was, he's, he's been accused of inciting this, calling them patriots, saying that this was your election that was stolen. Can you tell us a little bit more about Coxie and his followers, what, what, their, 
where they came from? Sure. So uh, most of them were desperate. Some of them had been Union veterans during the Civil War. Uh, they came from the Midwest and the West primarily. And Coxie and some of them had a little bit more you know, financial wherewithal, but most of them were pretty poor. And they were aligned with the People's Party movement of the 1890s. So they were definitely on the progressive end of the political spectrum. Uh, and the, the, the Populist Party, the People's Party at that time, was trying to envision new things that the federal government could do to help people uh, in times of distress. Uh, for example, they had the idea that the Postal Service, uh, the U.S. Post Office, should be a bank. And rather than having to pay bank fees, uh, if you had a very small amount of money to invest, every citizen could go ahead and use the postal saving, use the postal savings bank. And that way, the federal government would help people save without racking up lots of fees. So a lot of creative ideas about how to, um, and, you know, Coxie and his idea of, of jobs, right? Uh, aid to farmers was really, really important. So they represented more urban working class uh, people than anything else. And they were almost all men. Uh, in fact, they pretty much, uh, women joined them along the way on a, you know, for, for sort of welcome at various towns and cities, but uh, the marchers were all men. That's a, that's a really interesting parallel. Um, just, to, I don't think, I've, I'd never heard of that. These people were here for uh, a different sort of reason. They weren't necessarily asking something from the government. They had felt the government had taken something that is at, at the heart of American democracy. They felt like they had had an election stolen from them. Right. I, you know, I think this is very much it's very important to put this episode in the history of American elections. And that's why I think the moment of secession in 1861 is probably the most relevant parallel uh, because you can have what you have is a, an election that has been freely and fairly decided. There's no evidence of fraud. Uh, and here you have a large portion of the populace saying, we refuse to recognize the results. Uh, the result didn't go our way. And therefore, we uh, we consider this to be illegitimate. And I think exploring that a little bit, why is it that people would say that the election has been stolen when they have no evidence of widespread fraud? Is that because false evidence of fraud is being circulated? Or uh, is it for some other reason? I think it does matter that out on Facebook, there are these false claims of, of machines that, you know, voting machines, having their parts changed and things like that, uh, the stuff that circulates. But I think that that stuff is circulating in support of a pre-existing view, right? It's not like someone's just sitting there saying, well, I wonder how this election came out. And then someone says, look, let me show you this proof of fraud. The, 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 what's happening is that there's a predisposed belief that the election was stolen. And I would argue that that comes from a different place, actually, from any, any real factual evidence of fraud. In 1860, when Lincoln ran, uh, one of the arguments made by secessionists is that there were a few states in the North that had actually allowed African-American men to vote, and that therefore, because they allowed Black voters to vote, their whole state vote was illegitimate. The assumption was, you know, this is a white man's country, this is a white man's republic, and if any state begins to offer uh, the opportunity to vote for black men, then its entire vote is illegitimate. And therefore the election is illegitimate. And I think something fairly similar is operating here. If you think back to the summer of 2019, one of the controversial moments among many of the Trump administration was when 
Uh, he was criticized uh, by four uh, congresswomen who were women of color. Uh, and he said, go back. You just need to go back where you came from. Well, of course, three of them were American born. The other is a naturalized American citizen. Um, but if you take a congresswoman from Detroit and you say, because your parents were born in Palestine, you don't belong here. Basically, it's not, I disagree with you. You're an American and you have a point of view and I'm an American and I have a point of view, but you, uh, you, know, you don't have a right to be part of this conversation, right? Because I see you as being of a different color and of coming from an immigrant background and therefore I count and you don't. Um, and if you say that, then it's not a very far leap to say the whole vote of Detroit doesn't count, right? <laughs> uh, because if you voted to put into office someone of color who doesn't really count, then all those votes can not count. So the underlying rhetoric here uh, is very much that some votes count more than others. And if those white votes get outvoted by people who aren't really voters, right, are not real Americans, uh, then you can make the argument that, yeah, the election was stolen. And I think that's the subtext here. Uh, not, uh, and, and of course, you can cover, if you don't want to really look hard at that story, then you can cover it with well, there was these voting machine problems and there was a tiny little piece of a microchip that was taken out or, uh, so, you know, someone threw away the ballots. But that's not the real story. The real story is we don't like the results because we don't believe that the people won are actually legitimate Americans. I think that that's, that's a huge part of the subtext here. I'm probably stating the obvious, but the people who stormed the Capitol on Wednesday were not, a, you know, a multicultural crowd. <laughs> uh, there were a few women, but this was mostly uh, a movement of white men who have either a white supremacist background or are carrying Confederate flags or have, or wearing, uh, you know, MAGA Civil War January 6, 2021 t-shirts, or in some way are really uh, connected to uh, a white supremacist point of view. And, and to add on to that, there were Confederate flags and yes. um, symbols of, I'm not sure how you would classify them, but symbols like uh, 6WEM or 6WE, 6 million wasn't enough, um, yeah. referencing the Holocaust. So right. you have... Uh, yeah, there was a, somebody had an Auschwitz t-shirt on, right? Uh, yeah. I think, um, but definitely, certainly neo-Nazi and white supremacist. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, at this point, they're identifying those individuals as being people who have a longstanding history in, in you know, in, in right-wing extremism. And in, in the Trump era, there's been a rise of these groups sort of coming out of the woodwork and being much more vocal yep. and arming themselves uh, pseudo militia type organizations. And I would actually say that I would actually say that um, yes, there's definitely a rise in that. Um, and one of the things that Trump has done is kind of bring that into the political system. There are an awful lot of people who had not voted for either political party who were extreme right wing voters, uh, with extreme right wing, you know, who may have been involved in militia activity and that kind of far right work. And they did not see a place for themselves in the political system. Uh, but then uh, in 2016, they added to their other activities, let me register and vote, because now there's suddenly this guy who is speaking to me and who's going to bring me into the Republican Party. Uh, so I think that that's an important piece of the story. And yes, there's been a rise in violence. There's been a rise in, you know, in, in, in uh, incidents of hate 
uh, crimes, but then there's also been this kind of political component added so that the Republican Party uh, has had added to it and, and now is very much embedded in it, uh, this strong uh, right-wing ideology. How viable are these paramilitary organizations, if I can call them that, after Trump? Um, will they? Are we going to have a, a sort of thing where we have these organizations lingering, amassing numbers in a 21st century America? That's a really important question. I think one of the most, the the first and most pressing question is how much will this threat remain embedded inside the political system in the United States? How many people who hold office uh, in Congress, right, at, uh, in the Senate, in the House, uh, are going to continue to agitate that Trump was really the winner and that this was a fraudulent election? How many people in power are going to continue to say that? And they're all Republicans. So the the, the question is, I mean, at least I haven't found any. If there's a Democrat out there saying that Trump won, I, <laughs> you know, an elected official, I don't know who they are. Um, and that's not to say, I mean, the, but, but the Republican Party is splitting, right? There have been some uh, some stalwart Republicans uh, like uh, Mr. Raffensperger in, uh, in, in Georgia. Uh, I mean, I think one of the important things about this is this has not been a, a necessarily a partisan moment. Uh, there have been uh, maybe late in the game, we could argue, for some of Trump's own officials uh, who are resigning. Uh, but you also have state election officials in states like Georgia and uh, Arizona and elsewhere, who some are Republicans, some are Democrats, but all have followed the Constitution. So you've had people in this moment, and that includes the military, think of this as a coup attempt by someone who's already in power. So therefore, it's an attempt to hold on to power uh, and overthrow the transition into a new administration rather than to you know, come in from the outside. Uh, but this coup attempt had many parts. It did not start on January the 6th. Um, it's, it started even perhaps arguably before the election, when uh, Trump said things like, well, you know, they're, we're going to win no matter what, and I might or might not recognize the results. Uh, if I win, of course, I'm going to recognize the results. But after the election, in some ways, he's kind of stress tested every piece of American democracy. He didn't want it to get to this point. He wanted the military to declare martial law. He wanted the courts to overturn the election. And he put in huge numbers of lawsuits to try to say this was fraud, there was fraud, this was fraud. Um, none of them went anywhere. He didn't have the evidence. He had no evidence of fraud. Uh, he tried to get the Justice Department to intervene. Uh, he, you know, he intervened by personal calls to the state officials. Uh, he used pretty much every mechanism he could think of, including trying to figure out whether maybe the Pennsylvania state legislature uh, could appoint a whole alternative set of electors. I mean, just the whole range of options. Um, and any of those would have been a coup. Right. Any attempt to overthrow the popular vote and the electoral college vote uh, and come up with a different result was a coup. Uh, but none of them worked. Uh, all of those institutions held, which sometimes really makes me feel kind of overwhelmed and inspired because that's what most of us have feared most deeply since Trump showed up is will these institutions hold? Uh, will they hold? A lot of those judges who uh, who rejected um, Trump's 
the Trump lawyers' uh, you know, you know, cases were Republican appointees. A lot of the state officials who said, no, I'm really sorry, Mr. Trump, you just don't have the votes, your facts are wrong, were Republicans. So what we have now is a split in the Republican Party, uh, whether it was very early on and very prominently, some people like Mitt Romney and other Republicans who've early on said, nope. This is not the Republican Party I want to have, um, or whether it's people who eventually came around, <laughs> uh, people who were never Trumpers from the start, or people who yesterday decided, uh-oh, uh, I think we have to give a little more credit to the folks from the beginning, right, <laughs> uh, who saw where this was headed. I don't give a whole lot of credit uh, to Mitch McConnell, who suddenly discovered that this is an insurrection uh, at the very last minute, or to Betsy DeVos, who just re resigned. But nonetheless, you are having those people step away. And, and it may be late in the game, but they are stepping away and saying, no, this is not OK. Um, and so the question is, what's going to happen to the Republican Party? How much of the Republican Party is going to peel off uh, and and say this is not the right direction? And of course, uh, the there's an enormous number of House of Representative members who voted to overturn the results. So in Congress, you have embedded a very a, a, a major uh, a major power center um, in the Republican Party. Right, and, and, and so there's a lot of things we don't know. And one of the things we don't know is whether Trump is going to end up able to run again. Um, right. And if and, and, and there's a real path divide there. Right. If he emerges from all of this able to run again, we know that he's a serious danger. If he emerges from this unable to run again, we know his supporters are a serious danger because any attempt to curb him uh, and to say what he has done is felonious, what he has done is an abuse of power, he needs to go to jail, he needs to be impeached, depending on whether you see this as criminal acts or whether you see this as impeachable offenses. And I think that people say, oh, well, we should just go ahead and just let this you know, play out. The inauguration is coming soon. But what's really important here is that, uh, I mean, is, is to attempt uh, to have him removed from office in such a way that he cannot run again. I think both paths are dangerous. I think it's more dangerous to have him leave office as someone who could run again. But there are also dangers associated with uh, the other path. We only have two paths now, which is to impeach him or in some other way, hold him accountable for what are clearly at this point crimes. And in that way, uh, hopefully disqualify him from running for office in the future. Um, and uh, and and the the institutional shape or the systemic shape of what happens going forward is going to kind of depend on which directions things things go. You study American politics from the hindsight of 120 plus years, 19th century. I think that students, at least, maybe I think people in general have a tendency to look at things. In, in simple terms, and they they seem from the from the vantage point of of being a historian, they may seem very obvious. What do you think will be the narrative of President Trump and this era of the Republican Party and democracy for future historians? Oh, that's a really great question and a hard one to answer because you know it's always hard for historians to look at the big picture until they have we have a little distance, a little bit of space, and we don't even know what's going to happen between now and January the twentieth. So who knows what's going to have happened by the time you put this podcast out? <laughs> who knows what might have happened tomorrow? Uh, we're in a moment of crisis and we don't know. Um, I, I think that this tendency in the Republican Party uh, emerged through, uh, I think there are direct links between Nixon and uh, 
uh, Joseph McCarthy and Trump through the lawyer Roy Cohn, for example, who was an advisor to Joseph McCarthy and who was an advisor to the young Donald Trump. Uh, so, I mean, there's some direct links there to Mac from McCarthyism through Nixon uh, to what we might call the Southern strategy that was um, that was uh, deployed uh, by Nixon and other Republicans to really play up the race card. Uh, you can look at that moment when LBJ signed the Voting Rights Act and he said, this is the right thing to do. We must have everyone have the right to vote. But I'm sealing the death warrant of the Democratic Party in the South for a long time because everybody's going to shift over because they're going to associate the Democratic Party with African-American voting rights. And so white voters are going to leave our party. And, you know, this is this is going to be an issue. And that's so there's this long cycle here that we could look at. Strom Thurmond and the Dixiecrats in 1948. We could look at George Wallace and massive resistance. All of these are pieces of the story. Uh, where did this particular strain of uh, racism, of white supremacy uh, come from? And how did it get lodged in the Republican Party? Because obviously it wasn't necessarily lodged in the Republican Party earlier. I, I hope, I hope that a hundred years from now, we'll look back and we will see Trump as an aberration. I hope that this will calm down and uh, that he that people will move swiftly to say, nope, uh, this is not American democracy. Uh, we're done. Uh, this was an illegitimate. Uh, this whole Trump enterprise was an, was an illegitimate. The, lo the, the longer that people have waited to speak out, the harder that has become. If everyone if Republicans early on had all said no then Republican voters, right? Not just elected officials, but if Republican voters had all said, no, we are not going to vote for someone just because he was Celebrity Apprentice uh, host, right? Um, this is a dangerous guy. Things would have stopped very early on. But of course, this has come a long way and he's gotten away with so much, right? He's gotten away with so much. Uh, so it's hard to say where we're headed now, but one hopes that we're going to restore a normal uh, functioning of government. We, one hopes that finally, perhaps, he went too far this time, uh, that he may uh, suffer consequences, and that then that's going to delegitimize this wing. Everybody's going to start talking now about the 2024 Republican primaries. I don't even want to think about that. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but it is important to think about, right? If an anti-Trump candidate uh, or we might say a non-Trump candidate, at least, wins the nomination in 2024, then we go back the other direction. But I, I will also say that I think we pay too much attention to presidential politics sometimes. It's a weird moment to say that because <laughs> uh, the presidency is very important right now, and Trump is very important, and Biden is very important. But congressional elections matter a lot, too. So we're going to see what happens uh, in the midterms coming up. Uh, there is a clear regional divide here. It's not as clear as it was in the moment of secession in 1860-1861. It's really obvious which states seceded from the Union, but we do have a kind of, we're in a kind of limbo state here where there's large portions of the country where a lot of representatives are uh, towing the Trump line. And so how those midterms shake out, how it happens in Congress is a little unclear. We hope that, you know, democratic control for two years is going to help restore norm a normal constitutional order. 2022.
2022. Okay. Well, between now and 2022, we have Democrats in charge of the government. One of the first things they will do, I hope, is uh, is is secure voting rights uh, and 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 do various things uh, to strengthen our democracy. And it, that's going to have to be step one. Uh, in order to make sure that elections are secure and that uh, that uh, and that the the peril that we just went through uh, can be rectified. Right, right. I mean, in in my home state of Georgia, where we just sent two Democratic senators to two will soon be Democratic senators. Yes, they're, they're already talking. Story. A remarkable story. Yeah, it, it it's an incredible story, um, and one that's unfortunately overshadowed. But they're already talking about making uh, the Republican legislature, state legislature, is already talking about making absentee ballots more difficult um, right. to fill right. out and, and turn right. in. And, and, and here's the here's the thing is that the federal government can fix that, right? I mean, the federal government could say, here's a set, I mean, this is essentially like we, we need another Voting Rights Act, basically, right? Uh, we need to go back to where we were with the Voting Rights Act and say, everyone gets to vote. And here's how we can make that easier uh, and make sure that people have access to the ballot. That's fundamental. And if a state chooses to breach those rights, come to court, right? Because, uh, you know, you, that, that's, that those are, these are going to be federally guaranteed rights again, right? We did, <laughs> we did this before. Um, and, and I think some of the changes that have been made to the voting rights act, uh, need, need to be, we need to restore, uh, federal, you know, federal security for elections and for voting rights. So I, my last question is a two-parter. You mentioned this stress test that our democracy just went through. Could you give uh, an example of maybe 19th century stress tests, maybe besides the Civil War being the obvious, but you can certainly talk about that. And that, that's the, the, the first part of the question. Oh, that's really interesting. So one of the things that was really unprecedented about this year, and this might not be quite the question you were asking, but this is the answer that comes to mind. So the moment, the moment that perhaps most alarmed me during this election season, and it's hard to pick because there were a lot, but was when the Republican Party did not adopt a platform. To me as a historian, that was an extraordinarily shocking thing. The last time that a major party did not adopt a platform was 1840 because the Whigs were just coalescing as a national party. And it was the first time they had run a national presidential campaign and they didn't have a platform yet fully worked out. Um, But since 1840, the two major parties and usually several additional parties as well have all had platforms. And uh, it's, it's something that hasn't been remarked on, I think, nearly enough that the Republican Party this year chose not to have a platform. Uh, and their, their, their statement was basically, we're going to keep the 2016 platform and we don't need to consult our party members because we know that they would want to do what President Trump wants us to do. So we are not even going to ask. We're just going to say what Mr. Trump wants is our platform. That is terrifying. That is an enormous breach of party uh, practice, party tradition, uh, going back to 1840. And certainly the Republican Party has never, since 1856, when it ran its first president, has always had a platform. Um, 
And it's certainly authoritarian. It's, it's, a, it's an enormous marker of authoritarianism for a party to say, we're not a collective of individuals with ideas of our own. We're not a space in which people debate ideas. We're not going to sit down as a party and decide what's our housing policy or how, what's our view of, uh, you know, how we should handle, you know, foreign policy with China. We're just going to take one guy and we're going to say, you're in charge and we don't have any more ideas except to say, Mr. Trump, what do you want us to do? So again, and it's having, having trouble. You're asking me for precedents, and sometimes I'm. <laughs> uh, I mean, there there isn't any precedent for a for a major party doing that. And so that's one of the challenges to me, and one of the markers for me, right? Next time around, and I hate to think about next presidential election. I would like to think about a lot of things between now and then. But but for the next presidential election, the Republican Party had darn well better get itself together and hash out a platform. And the healthiest thing it could do would be to bring a large number of delegates together to sit down and say, okay. What is our platform? Who do we as the Republican Party stand for? That is going to be extremely difficult, but uh, that's going to be the painful work of rebuilding what has been demolished. And, uh, and we'll see whether and how that takes place. I didn't realize that they didn't adopt a platform. That's an incredible it, it's a, piece it, of It is. And it's been, to me, much underemphasized, right? I mean, that was, that's one of my things I was rolling around this fall as a historian saying, they don't have a platform. You know, this is, a, <laughs> what's going on here? Uh, how can it be that the Republican Party has decided to just abdicate its responsibility to stand for anything other than what Trump wants? Uh, and that puts them in a very weak place right now, frankly, because if you put all everything into the Mr. Trump, uh, 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 you know, basket of eggs, and that basket proves to be Humpty Dumpty, you don't really have a, a place going forward. So I think we're going to see, we're certainly going to see uh, divisions and fissures among Republicans, uh, a lack of clarity about what they're, who the Republican Party is. We could potentially see a splinter white supremacist party if the Republican Party regains its pre-Trump uh, shape. Um, we could see a lot of other configurations. It's really too early to tell. So that was part one. Part two of my question is, we have now had the erosion of norms and yes. lack of respect for uh, for norms. Yes. Is that something that you think is, one, a uniquely Republican idea because Democrats have already started talking about court packing and and, and other things? Not that those are um, not to not to equate those, but th that is uh, that's never happened. Right. Uh, we've always had nine Supreme Court justices uh, and. Is, is that something that's going to be a, a, a bipartisan issue going forward, just grappling for power between the parties? Well, so I would say that there's a fine line between overturning norms and just change, right? <laughs> uh, things change and things should change, right? Um, and, and, and I mean, it, people who, I, I'm always kind of amused by people who say that we must have the exact original constitution the way it is. We are, we are, we are sort of believers in original intent. Well, first of all, you can use the document to show that the original framers did not believe in original intent. <laughs> uh, they, they say in the document, no, you should, you should revise this. Here's how. Uh, but, you know, the Constitution is all about the compromise over slavery, right? The Constitution is saturated. It's soaked in slavery. And so the Constitution had to be, uh, you know, vastly amended at some point to take slavery out. 
So change is an ongoing thing and it's often really positive and really healthy. It's hard. Uh, I, as a, I serve as a county legislator in addition to being a history professor. And I find that, it, you know, just even suggesting, well, what if we put a bike path there? Or uh, how about if we change the layout of this road? What if we put in a roundabout? Even little questions like that make things, it's just hard. Change is hard. People are used to things being the way that they are. And big changes are extremely hard and sometimes feel very risky. Um, When norms get overturned, then change has already happened. And so you raise a question about, are we going back to the status quo? Um, or are we going to sort of repair these disruptions by moving in a new direction? So it can provide a possibility for you know a fresh start. I think the Supreme Court is broken. I think that the Republican Party has broken the Supreme Court. I think its legitimacy is deeply in question at this point. Uh, uh, it, it, you know, it was already in question to some degree when Clarence Thomas came on board. <laughs> uh, that was one problem, and now we have. Um, now we have uh, a, a bunch of, uh, you know, we, we have a whole series of Supreme Court nominations that have been, uh, you know, people have been seated where through the Merrick Garland, through the Brett Kavanaugh, through the Amy Comey Barrett, right? We like, who, <laughs> how did these people get there? So we have an institution that's going to be hard to take back to where it was before. Um, so I think, I, th- I think that Biden has promised to put together a commission to review the federal courts, how they operate, what should be done, what recommendations should be made. And that's, um, I think that's a great idea. Um, sit down and, 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 and think through how things should look. And the goal should not be, let's put everything back exactly the way it was, but to say, what do we need going forward? One of the conversations we most need to, need to have is about social media, um, the power of Facebook and Twitter um, and their capacity, their voraciousness in profiting off of misinformation uh, is an is an important issue, and they've waited too late, right? It's it's much too late now for Facebook to say we're going to lock down Trump's account. That is talk about the horse being out of the barn, right? Um, I mean, and, and and in some ways, it's good that Trump is calling attention to it because Facebook has been misused in terrifying ways in other parts of the world. Uh, genocide in Myanmar and things like that are are directly attributable to misinformation on Facebook, and no one has policed it. Uh, they've allowed, uh, you know, and, and Facebook has aggressively uh, uh, defended its right to continue profiting off of misinformation. So without calling for censorship, it's very jarring to me to hear sort of, well, Facebook decided today that it's going to block uh, Trump for 48 hours. It's like, really? Who decided that? Right? <laughs> That's about the most least democratic thing I can think of. Um, and needless to say, I'm very happy to have him blocked right at the moment for reasons of public safety. But that's not a democratic decision, and a corporation should not be making uh, should not have that much power uh, to make those kinds of decisions. So there's a bunch of issues like that where we know we don't want to just say, okay, things were doing great right before Trump came along, so let's go back doing exactly what we ought to do, what we were doing before. We want some serious reform, and it's within governmental structures within voting and elections, election law, but also in other institutions, and particularly, I think, perhaps corporate regulation. Uh, We are living in the world of Amazon and Facebook and Uber. And if we don't get a grip on, in some ways, on the enormous power of those corporations, we're going to be in trouble.
Um, but that's a that that takes us back to a sort of populist message from the 1890s, right, <laughs> from the progressive era. Uh, and it's something I hope uh, is going to be very important in the new Democratic administration. I hope that people like uh, Elizabeth Warren will have some influence. Her work on consumer protection, uh, for example, is immensely powerful and can make a huge difference in people's lives. I think you took that in a direction where it's very timely with the suit against Facebook and Google. How likely is one is that to succeed in There's been a lot made of uh, these companies as monopolies, much like the standard standard oil um, and et cetera, monopolies of the late 19th century. How much power does the federal government have when it comes to breaking up those companies now? Well, I think certainly people are citing the 1911 Standard Oil uh, decision as an important precedent for these kinds of activities. I think just from a a sort of broader cultural or economic standpoint, I think that there's some real parallels to be made between Silicon Valley and the the industrialists of the late 19th century, people like Andrew Carnegie and uh, John D. Rockefeller and... uh, uh, the you know the Swift Gustavus Swift of the Swift meatpacking industry and things like that. There was a whole generation after the Civil War that, who really thought that they were good guys. They were coming in and making the world a better place. They were you know giving that what they were doing was both uh, economically profitable and socially beneficial. And it took a couple of decades of people going, "Wow, look at that Carnegie Steel you know industry." to go or look at Rockefeller in this, you know, sort of uh, empire he's built. And then by the, you know, mid 1880s going, wait, <laughs> uh, maybe that wasn't quite so beneficial as we thought it was. It's beneficial to Mr. Rockefeller, but maybe not so much to everybody else. So uh, I think that we've had a similar moment with Silicon Valley. Uh, there's a lot of frustration now over their immense power. But of course, by the time people get frustrated and discover that capitalism has not produced exactly the results that people wanted um, and that it might need some regulation, then you, uh, you, they have already amassed so much wealth and so much power, so much clout, uh, that then it becomes difficult to regulate. One of the hopeful aspects of the current moment, if there are any, is that there's a, a, a real bipartisan sentiment about we really need to do something here. This can't be allowed to go on. Workers are, you know, workers' health are jeopardized, and and um, and we've we've got work we've got work that we need to do. And, and you know, and and our, this poisonous misinformation uh, and Facebook is is clearly at the top of the list. So we're going to have to see what what can happen here. With with luck, would love to see us move on, and six months from now to be. Uh, moving into a post-COVID world where we are healing from the collective trauma that we've all experienced, where we are uh, helping people get back on their feet, and where we are thinking about Trump as a kind of distant memory, right? Uh, He went so far uh, that almost everyone had to disavow him in the end, and uh, he kind of falls off the map, and we move on. And the Biden administration uh, begins to initiate a whole bunch of very robust proposals for rebuilding our infrastructure, supporting our schools, expanding early childhood education, uh, you know, uh, all the things that we need to do to strengthen our society and uh, uh, from from, you know, mental health support to affordable housing. And we could become we could be in a very, very 
positive, inspiring moment six months from now. Uh, we don't know that though, but I'd like to offer that because I think it's in a moment of crisis like this, it's hard to see those potential positive futures, but we can hope. Well, I think that's a, a, the optimistic note we were looking for to end it on. Good, good. Uh, good. Thank Just you so, so much for joining us. You're welcome. My pleasure. <laughs>